Amen. Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning. That was really good. That was better than last week. So it's the cool kids are here today. So look, uh, my name is Ed Griffin-Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here at Church on the Trail. I'm super thankful that you're here. Uh, Brittany even said a little while ago, there's lots of places that you could be. Uh, uh, as we get to the end of the summertime, there's lots of places that you could be. The Lord is, has got us all here together, I believe, uh, for a reason, for a purpose. He's ordained all this. And if you're watching online, whether it's <clears throat> whether it's right now, Sunday, and you're watching, I guess if somebody's watching, even if it's Thursday, it's right now to them. That was awkward. Bottom line is, whenever it is, if you're here with us, I know and I trust and I believe that God is doing something in this, in this body of believers. And so, y'all, you know, last week uh, we finished a series that we called A Tale of Ten Cities. And if you're new here, if you haven't really been paying attention since last June, because that's when we started a walk through the, uh, through the book of Acts, and Acts is really part two. Luke, Dr. Luke is who wrote the book of Acts, and Luke is who wrote the gospel according to Luke, and the book of Acts is kind of part two to his gospel. And so Luke, the human author, when I say he's the writer, he's the human author uh, of Acts, and Acts is this amazing uh, this amazing story of how a group of just regular folks, just normal people, were used by God to birth the church. You know, we see it at the very beginning of Acts. They were used by God to birth the church and then, and then to bring the fires of revival across the Middle East and then north up into Asia and ultimately across the entire known world. And, and the truth is, history has really never seen an assignment that huge, because that's a pretty huge assignment. God birthed his church and then sent the people out. And history's never seen an assignment that huge given to a less qualified group of people. You know, after Jesus walks out of, a, uh, of the grave alive and he gathers up this, this bucket of fishermen and tax collectors and, and outsiders, and he says to them, he says, okay, now you're my guys and you're my ladies, and, and now is the time that it's your job to go out and share this story and make disciples all over the planet. That's a pretty big job. And then he just disappeared up into the clouds. And so that would, that would beg the question, if I'm one of them, you tell me to do that, and then poof, you're gone up into the clouds. Well, how in the world do they do that? And he had been promising for some time about sending his Holy Spirit to them. Well, I think there's two sort of ways that they're empowered to do this. And one of those, for sure, is he sent his Holy Spirit to empower them. And, and now they got soul power. And this first church is built on that, on completely on soul power, number one. Number two, they were absolutely one million percent sold out, bought in, all in, completely convicted and convinced that he had literally risen from the grave alive and that changed everything about the way they viewed everything it changed everything about the way they walked and talked and looked at life and everything changes when you are bought in to the fact that a, a dead guy went in the grave and a live guy came out of the grave it changes everything for them it changed everything you know somebody hits them with a question that they couldn't answer it's like, I hear you, but Jesus rose from the dead. They got into a debate that they couldn't win. Have you ever gotten yourself in a discussion with a really smart guy and, 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 and you kind of realize that you're not going to win that debate with him or her, even though you are one million percent right? Well, Peter finds himself in that spot in Acts chapter 4, and he's, like, and he's before the Sanhedrin, and you got this big group of Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish leadership, and they're all learned, and they're all holy, and they're all righteous, and they're pretty smart because they've been studying Scripture for a bajillion years, and they know the Scripture like the back of their hands. And Peter, he's like, I don't know about all this theology stuff, and I don't know about all this doctrine stuff, and all you Pharisees and all you, you, you Sadducees, you really are smarter than me. But I hung out with this Jesus guy for quite a while. And he got himself dead, and then he got alive. How about them apples? <laughs> and then he probably dropped the mic or something, right? It changes. Y'all, it changes the way you view everything. 
if you truly believe, it changes the way you view everything. If, if those, those early disciples, if they, and me and you, if there are mountains that they faced that they really couldn't overcome, when they ran out of money, when political leaders threw them in jail, when their families got thrown and, and fed to the lions, they're like, yeah, but Jesus rose from the dead. They got discouraged or they've blown it. You ever been discouraged? Looked in the mirror and said, the guy in the mirror blew it. I mean, I have. So when I get discouraged, or when they got discouraged and they blew it, messed up an opportunity or, or messed up something in, uh, in their own lives, yeah, but Jesus rose from the dead. And he did it for me, and he's got a plan for me. So y'all, if, if we know that we know that we know that we know that Jesus rose from the dead, that should provide you crazy confidence, like crazy hope, we ought to be making big plans for the future because we're just a ragtag bunch of Jesus freaks, but he's got a plan for me, and he's got a plan for you, and it's bigger than anything that we could ever face. Any obstacle we could ever face, if I trust that he died on the cross, that he went in the grave dead, and he came out alive, his plans are way bigger than anything I could ever imagine. So Acts, the book of Acts, is a story of how these early Christ followers filled up with the Holy Spirit and fully bought into the resurrection. It's this story about how they went out and shared his story. And all along the way, the writer, the human writer, Luke, he gives us their stories and their lessons throughout their stories that can help us 2,000 years later. Brings us to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today. And in Acts 15, the church runs into a problem. There's a shocker. Church is made up of what? People. So the church runs into a problem, this early church. They run into an issue. An issue that would have radically changed the landscape of Christianity had they not handled it the way that they did handle it. Look at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. You know, you always go up to Jerusalem and you go down away from it. So they came, even though they were going north. They came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, don't forget that a huge amount of, of these first Christians were Jews. And in the Old Testament, the law dictated that every male be circumcised, actually be circumcised at eight days old. And that was an act that, that really separated, consecrated and separated God's people, his chosen people, from the rest of the world. And so naturally, some of those, some of that, that bucket of people were teaching that if you're really going to be saved, like you could be half saved, but if you're really going to be saved, that you got to get circumcised at eight days. I remember mine. I didn't walk or talk for about 10 or 12 months. <laughs> Verse 2. I don't know why I went there. I apologize. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, this was with the d a debate with these people that are demanding circumcision, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, remember they're in Antioch in Syria. That's where, uh, that's where the first missionary journey launched from and came back to. So they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary, really two things, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is a, a long trip for Paul and Barnabas, about 300 miles from Antioch in Syria down to Jerusalem, and Paul and, and been planting churches along the way and, and pouring into the people in the, in the churches. We saw that last week. We talked about it. And in the middle of all that, he comes back to Jerusalem to meet with the boys. The boys are in Jerusalem in what history has called the Jerusalem Council. That's what this, this big meeting that they had in Jerusalem was called. And Paul knew it was a big deal, and he comes back to talk about it, to talk about the issue. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, who? The Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Peter's saying he gave them the Holy Spirit, the Gentiles, just like he gave the Holy Spirit to us. And he made no distinctions, Peter's saying this, he made no distinction between us and them. You know, distinctions are man-made. They're not God-made. So he says, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And I've said this to y'all before. I'm saying it again. There's 613 Old Testament laws. Circumcision's one of them. It's a big one, but it's one of them. And so Peter jumps into this discussion, and, 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 you know, Peter is impulsive, and Peter is really probably reactive. And Peter just speaks his mind. He doesn't be, Peter's not the dude that beats around the bush. And so Peter is, is like, I don't know about y'all, but I sure hadn't been able to keep all 613 of them. Like, are you kidding me? Are you telling me that I got to walk to church? I can't drive because if I drive to church, I'm, I'm breaking the, the Sabbath. you telling me that I can't eat shrimp because it violates the dietary laws in Leviticus. He's like, I'm a fisherman, and you're telling me I can't eat shrimp. He's, he's really, Peter is like, no matter how hard I try, there's no way that I can possibly keep all of the law. I just can't do it. I only felt shame because of the failure. Probably Peter's like, how about you, James? How about you, Thad? How about you, whoever? If we can't handle it, and our moms and our dads couldn't handle it, and our grandmama and granddaddies couldn't handle it, how can we put a burden that they couldn't handle nor we could handle, how can we put that burden on this group of Gentiles? Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, talking about what happened on that first missionary trip. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James, Jesus' brother James, replied, Brothers, listen to me. And then he kind of goes on, but in verse 19, he says, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't make it hard. That's what James is saying. We don't need, we make it too hard, y'all. And James says, we don't need to make it hard. We don't need to make it hard on people that turn to the Lord. I want to get that like tattooed on my forehead. Don't make it hard for people to turn to Christ. Don't put obstacles and roadblocks in front of people. One of our chorist of values here is that we will do anything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. We're not going to sin, but we're going to do anything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. Even in my, my flawed preaching and the way that we do church around here, I want it to be real. I want us to be authentic. People who don't know anything about Jesus, people who, who don't know anything about Christianity, people who have no idea who God is or what he says, I want to communicate in real language, real language, real words, albeit some of them are made up from time to time. I get that. Y'all, I don't, I don't want us to be full of, of, of cliques that are nearly impenetrable. Or for us to set up expectations for people that are completely unachievable. We don't need to set people up for failure. We don't. Like, like, like you got to be perfect. No. No. Bring the imperfections in here. Bring them in here. If we said, you know, only people who are perfect and sinless can be in here, the whole entire place would be empty. Bring the imperfection. When we say you don't have to leave your baggage at the door, I want us to mean you don't have to leave your baggage at the door. I don't want it to be hard for guests that, that show up here because they heard God was moving and shaking maybe in this place, but they get here and the parking lot is rough or the, the, the volunteers aren't that friendly or there's not enough volunteers or the place is, is messy. I don't want it 
Y'all, I don't want it to be hard for people who want to get connected to a group by making the process too hard to figure out. I don't want it to be hard for people who maybe hadn't been to church in years and years and years because some, some, something happened in a church that was hurtful, and they may not even remember what it was. But all they have is negative feelings to, quote, the church. I don't want to make it hard for them to, to turn back to the Lord by standing up here and condemning and shaking uh, and, and shaming, uh, shaking my fist at and shaming folks on the other side of that door. I don't want us to do that. I don't want to make it hard for people by stigmatizing somebody's sin because it's different than my sin. We got a real propensity for doing that. I don't want to make it difficult for Alabama fans that come in here and I'm wearing red and black talking about the game last January. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I just did. <laughs> I hear you. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore, it's James, uh, James talking. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And you may say, it's kind of an odd little list. Know, sexual immorality and things polluted by idols and like who strangles animals but the Gentile world of that day was super super promiscuous and all of that craziness was just accepted in that world temple prostitution and just craziness going on and so James is really he's not saying here that these are the only commandments that they needed to obey as if the big ten are just somehow booted to the curb that is not at all what he's saying in fact down through church history if you study church history there's been this kind of this delineation between the moral law and ceremonial laws passages like this the moral dimensions of the law are clearly still in force because God is clearly still on the throne and he is unchanging so so what about this this idle stuff or this not choking out a cow and eating a filet. I believe James is making a, he's making a point. He's making a point that these things could be incredibly offensive to Jews, that they're trying to Jewish Christians and to Jews that haven't come to faith yet. The whole idol thing is an abomination to Jews. It would cause fellowship problems. It would cause major fellowship problems. And so he's like, don't throw it up in their face. Could you eat? And Paul writes about this later on in Romans. Could you eat? Are you free in Christ to eat food sacrificed to an idol? Sure. But don't throw it all up in the Jew's face. So you might as well just abstain from it. It's not going to hurt anything. And then, and then he kind of wraps it up neatly in this little package. And he says, James does, he says there's really two things. Two things you obey the moral dimensions of the law and really 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 don't throw your freedom up in somebody's face don't offend other believers with something that you are free to do and so this is the letter the letter starts in well it doesn't start in verse 28 but this is part of the letter verse 28 for it has seemed good and this is a letter that the Jerusalem council is sending to Gentiles okay for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. It's kind of the end of that letter. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, the letter from the Jerusalem Council. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. It was very encouraging. I also believe that there are some warnings in here. 
some real warnings for us as believers, for us as a church family, for every church, for every believer on the planet. And, and, what, and I've called this, I use this word creep, C-R-E-E-P, that, that creep. Creep is like building a house and you build the foundation of the house and in the front right corner of the house, you're a quarter of an inch off of being 90 degrees and when you get to the back right corner of the house, you're three feet off and you don't even know how you got three feet off when it's only 50 feet away and it's because you started creeping away from being 90 degrees. That stuff can happen in a church. This idea of creep, I'm going to give you a, a few examples that down through history just happened. This idea of creep. Number one is this. It's the creep from a passion for outsiders to simply pacifying insiders. Now I want to give you a disclaimer for about the next 15, 20 minutes. I'm probably going to offend us. I may offend myself, which is kind of odd. But I just want to prepare you that this is a conversation that is going to make you really look in the mirror and think about yourself. It makes, made me think about myself. And I want us to just be honest. And I want you to hear this whole thing. So let's have a, a serious conversation. So first, this creep from being passionate for outsiders to creeping into just pacifying, simply pacifying insiders. I said a little bit ago that we ought to be willing to do anything short of sin to reach folks who are far from God. We should be. And our hearts and our eyes and our minds should weep for the lost. We should weep for the lost. The fact that someone dies lost and goes to hell ought to make us cry. It ought to, it ought to make us go talk to people. It ought to make us go witness to people. It ought to make us go serve people and love on people. Not condemn and judge and shame. Absolutely not. This stuff can happen in any church, in any body of believers. This is one of the reasons why, just to get pragmatic for a second, why we want some more interest-based connect groups here. It is a whole lot easier. And we got a new one coming that is, that is a crafting connect. Did I say that right? That's why we have that. That's why we have a Pinterest connect group, uh, a Bunko connect group, a Pickleball connect group. And, he, and here's why. It's a whole lot easier for many people to be invited to go play pickleball and say yes than it is to be invited to come to church and say yes. And you may say, this is a church. We just need to have Bible studies. And I'm like, I want to go rah-rah because I'm the Word, man, every day, studying the Word. I get it. But I would also, if I, if I sit back and think about it, I would say, I hear you, but Betty Sue just maybe ain't ready to come to church yet. But maybe Betty Sue will come play pickleball. And then in that playing of pickleball, pickleball there's Jesus conversations that come up. Maybe Betty Sue becomes friends with other believers in there. And then with the leading of the Holy Spirit, Betty Sue is invited to come to church. Betty Sue is invited to come to a Bible study. Betty Sue ultimately is led to the foot of the cross, and Betty Sue is saved. And the trajectory of Betty Sue's family changes because she then leads her children to Christ. Like, I don't know. I know it's a whole lot easier for her to say yes to that than it may be for her. we got to be discerning, y'all. We just got to be discerning. Maybe over the, the course of some time, if you're the one that invited her, you can influence her. Because I told you last week and the week before, everybody in this room is an influencer. Maybe you influence her to come to church. Maybe it takes two weeks. Maybe it takes two months. Maybe it takes a year. I don't know. But I know I'm praying for the lost. I'm praying that people would walk into the light. We've got to rekindle our passion for the outsiders while at the very same time taking great care of the faithful insiders. Does that make sense? This is not to the exclusion of the faithful insiders. Of course it's not. I'd say this, though. All of us 
should be contributors and not consumers. If you're a Christ follower, you should be a contributor and not a consumer. The church does not exist for us. It doesn't. We are the church. Don't make the church be something it's not. The body of Christ is the church. We sacrifice things we love for things we love more. We sacrifice things that we love for things that we love more. It ain't no sacrifice if there ain't no sacrifice. Every one of us have, have got to make a conscious decision, a choice to advance the mission of Christ over and above preserving the status quo. We cannot make it hard for folks to have an opportunity to turn to Jesus. We cannot make it hard. We can't do that. We got to constantly like ask ourselves the question, are we making it hard for them or are we creating multiple opportunities and places for them to jump on the train? Are our words that come out of our mouth making it hard for them or is it making it easier for them? Our actions, our service, whatever, we cannot make it hard, number one. Number two, super um, akin maybe to this first creep is creep number two, and it is the creep from grace to law. Scripture tells us in verse 5, and honestly, if you'd asked me this two weeks ago, I would not have, I didn't really remember this little component of verse 5. It tells us that the one screaming and yelling about circumcision and about keeping the uh, Moses law, that they were saved. They, they were not outside. They were saved. Verse 5 says, the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, which tells me that along the way, some amount of these Pharisees got saved. So these are believing Pharisees. Do they have things that they bring to the table when they got saved? We call those presuppositions. Do you have, you and I, as we get saved, we cannot completely disconnect from everything that happened before. We can't, we bring stuff to the table. Sometimes we bring junk to the table. You know, sometimes we bring thoughts and beliefs and experiences and, and all of those things. That they're there. We can't just, um, we can't just flip a switch and, and get them out of our minds. And so no doubt these people, this this group of people, the, uh, the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, no doubt they believed that they were saved by trusting in Christ, but after some time they started creeping back to a, a rules and regulations-based relationship with God. We see that all the time. A creep, this, this creep from grace back to the law. Now in today's world, the list is different, probably circumcision, not really that big of a deal to us, but make no bones about it, we got our own list. We do. If you do these things, if you do those things, if you do this or that, it'll make you right with God and everybody will think that you're a, quote, good Christian. And those things are rarely bad things, whatever bad means, but they're rarely bad. Are you are you giving in the church? Are you serving in the church? Are you, are you praying? Are you maybe you're sharing your story? How much do you give? Y'all, we can all have this, this real tendency to compare and evaluate others by using a list, clinging somehow, maybe unconsciously, but clinging somehow to the law clinging and holding tightly onto some set of rules. I'll tell you a story about a lady. A lady who married a man named Jeff, and Jeff was a strong man. Jeff was a rules-oriented man, but he was a good man. He was a good man. Nobody would have said he was a bad man. But Jeff had this list of to-dos for his wife and to-don'ts for his wife every day. And she kind of grew a little frustrated over time living with Jeff, even though Jeff was a good man. And it wasn't that Jeff asked her to do wrong things. He, he, he didn't. There was just this constant tension because she was always wondering if she was living up to the standard 
that Jeff had established in their relationship. Every day she'd wake up, am I going to live up to the standard that he set for this relationship? And then Jeff died. Now, no, she didn't kill him, but he died. <laughs> but she had become so used to, to living under the, the umbrella, maybe, or the, the shadow of Jeff. She, she didn't know, she had no idea how to cut him loose. So she took Jeff to the taxidermist and she had Jeff stuffed. <laughs> Brought him into the house. Dead Jeff sat over there in a chair in the living room. She didn't know how to live without him, so she stuck him over there in that chair. And she would ask dead Jeff all every day, throughout the day, whether it was okay or not, whether I can do this or not do that, or go here or go there. And one day she went on a vacation, though, and she met a guy named Bill. And Bill loved her, and she, she just loved Bill. Bill gave her such joy. Bill drew out of her emotions that had long since died with Jeff. Bill inspired her. And she noticed over some little bit of time, she noticed that she did all the same stuff for Bill that she had done for Jeff, but minus the demands. She just did it because she loved him. She acted right because she loved him. Relationship was, was really so strong, she did the things because she wanted to. Not because there was a list that said she had to. Well, they then, then they decide to get married. Bill walked into her house for the first time. Reckon what his mouth did when he saw dead Jeff sitting over there in the recliner. You know, she brought her new love into her old house. And she said, now, Bill, I love you, but you got to understand, I've lived with Jeff for so long that i got to cling to him. i got to keep him a, at least a little bit close. And Bill let her know in no uncertain terms, though, that she couldn't have a, a dead man named Jeff and a living husband named Bill. He told her that his new bride, that she either had to give up her living husband and stay with her dead old love or bury her old love once and for all so that she could be free and live in freedom with her new love. That she couldn't have a, a dead love and a living love in the same house. Wouldn't work. Y'all, a lot of folks have been married to Jeff. For years and years and years, our lives have been built on a rules-based approach to the Christian life, to the Christian walk. And then we met Jesus Christ. And somebody told us that we were free. We just sang a song. They didn't just tell us we were free. They said we were, we're free indeed. But we're bringing Jesus Christ to live in our lives without dealing with burying old dead Jeff. Jesus is not going to live in a house with a dead man still calling the shots. He's not. And it's not that the law is bad. The law is not bad. But it can definitely creep into legalism. And legalism is simply a jacked up view of the rules. Hear this. Somebody write this down. Legalism expects a list to do what a list can never do. Never. Legalism expects a list to do what a list could never do. The list was never meant to save you. And it never could save you, nor will it ever save you. Creep number two. Now creep number three. There can be a creep from focusing on internal transformation to focusing on external conformity. There's a bunch of words. But that creep is, is this creep away from focusing on change that is inside in our, in our heart and in our mind, where our mind is renewed and we're transformed by the renewal of our mind and heart. It's moving away from that that's internal and happens inside of us to focusing on some conforming to some external set of rules or some ex being conforming to the way somebody says you need to walk in this line. So it's this, this, this internal thing that happens in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus said that the core of the law, the spirit of the law, was to love God and to love others. And if we love God and we love others, everything will flow out of that. 
and it will. It will. And we can't love others right unless we love him right. And maybe it's cliche, but the horizontal relationships ain't going to be right until the vertical relationship is right. And once the vertical relationship is right and the horizontal relationship gets right, it's like, it's like this woman in our story. She's, she's acting right because she loves the, 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 the God that she bends the knee to. She loves Bill. And she's acting right because she loves him and she loves others. And everything really will flow out of that. And Scripture actually does help us to see love as a verb, to see love as an, as an action, truth and purity and justice and serving one another. But the essence of all of it is having a heart of love that is generated by trust and faith in Christ. Trust and faith in Christ generates all of that. It's the engine that drives everything. And when we creep away from the internal and towards the external, all kinds of things falsely become, quote, laws that falsely determine your spiritual temperature. Maybe even falsely determine whether you're saved or not. And you're going to start determining whether this person is saved or not based on some external thing time of the Jerusalem council it was circumcision look at a few that exist today talk about alcohol scripture often speaks very negatively about alcohol warning about the dangers of drunkenness I read an article the day before yesterday and it was from like 2019 or 20 but it but it said that one in eight Americans meet the diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder. That's 13% of the population in America meets the diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder. There's nearly 100,000 alcohol-related deaths every year. It's a real problem, and it can become a real problem in your life. Now, I'm be frank and honest and transparent and authentic with you. I had too much to drink one time in 1981. I was a teenager. I hated the way it made me feel, never did it again. And honestly, for me, for me personally, I don't see anything really good coming from consuming alcohol. And other folks would say, Scripture says it's not what goes in the mouth that makes a man unclean, it's what comes out of a mouth. And you know what? That's exactly what Scripture says. And just because something is abused doesn't mean you just get rid of it. Food is abused, do we stop eating? Words are abused, do we uh, get rid of talking? 100,000 deaths related to alcohol? Yeah, but what about the 300,000 deaths that are related to obesity? Ain't nobody advocating abolishing desserts, not that I know of. And y'all, even though the, the, the Bible warns about the abuse of alcohol, you clearly see people in the New Testament drinking fermented beverages. And you know, probably Jesus was in that, included in that. Paul even prescribes alcohol for Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. What, what is all that, then what does all that mean? I think it means that we should follow our consciences and be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I think it means that the yardstick should not be some external standard. It means that sinful people tend to abuse things that are not inherently sinful. Does that make sense, that last statement? Sin, or all of us, raise your hand if you're a sinner. We all can tend to take things that are not inherently sinful and turn them into sin. Bread and wine are not sinful, but gluttony and drunkenness are. Godly people can land kind of on both sides of this. Some of you may hear this teaching about alcohol today, and you may say, I cannot wait to throw this right in the face of all them teetotalers. And if that's the case, it just displays how selfish you are. Because all of this means that we should not be a stumbling block to our brother or sister. And it may mean more than that, but it definitely means we, we shouldn't be a stumbling block to our brother or sister or anybody else. If I know that my brother in Christ has struggled with alcohol, then I'm not 
going to go have a glass of wine in front of him at the restaurant because I'm free to have a glass of wine. Are you free to have a glass of wine? Sure you are. Are you selfish and self-centered and only think about yourself? If you have a glass of wine with a friend that you know has struggled with alcohol for 25 years, I would say absolutely you are selfish. It tells me that you love the alcohol more than you love your friend. Let love drive all of that. This council's letter that was sent to the Gentiles, it advised them not to mess around with meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, ultimately. Why do you think that is? Was that for health reasons? Was it, was it inherently somehow nasty? I don't think, no. I don't think that is the answer to that. The reason is that it would have been highly offensive to Jewish Christians. And do you love your Jewish Christian brother or sister more than you love the ribeye from the ox? I hope that you do. We sacrifice things we love for things that we love more. How about, here's another one. How about our, our Christian appearance? My wife tells me that as she's growing up in the church, it was all about the way you dressed and all about the way you spoke. Had to look just so, had to speak just so. Are these matters of the heart? Around here, we ought not care how somebody dresses. You wear blue jeans to church? Big deal. You got to wear a suit? Not here, you don't. Wear flip-flops? Okay, wear a hat. Wear a t-shirt. Got a tattoo running from this wrist all the way around to this wrist. Who cares? Got a nose ring? Oh. Got ten rings in your ear? Oh, my goodness. I want us to concern ourselves with what the Lord concerns himself with. That's the condition of the heart. Now, your freedom to dress however you want you can cross a line in that too and become a stumbling block for someone else. Don't become a stumbling block for somebody. You've got freedom, but don't become a stumbling block for somebody else. That rule applies to, to everything that we do. But it sure ought not be about what you wear, right? How about politics? Ooh, my wife's over like, oh my gosh, are you going to talk about politics? Touchy subject. I believe that us as Christ followers, we should have a comprehensive biblical worldview. We should. Now, you can't have a comprehensive biblical worldview if you never open this up. It would be difficult. And we should have a biblical worldview. That means that we look at life and things in life, things in the world, through biblical truths and principles. I believe that there's wisdom in the scripture, because it's God's word, that allows us to look at things like taxation or immigration and other political uh, issues through the lens of God's word. And we should. But for a lot of people, certain political positions become somehow like Christian law, like an, like an external sign of whether or not you're saved. And maybe your position on certain issues is 100% right. But I don't want to make it hard for outsiders. Don't make it hard for, I don't want people to assume that to become a Christian means converting to a particular view of politics. It doesn't. It doesn't. It means converting to a particular view of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Should our view on the issues of the day be influenced by God's word absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt absolutely they should should we have these discussions absolutely we should have these discussions but I pray that they don't become the main thing I pray that Jesus Christ and the gospel stay the main thing I hope y'all that makes sense don't make a judgment call on, on somebody's heart based upon whether or not they conform to your politics. Now, with that said, just like the, the council, the boys in Jerusalem, said to the Gentiles in Antioch, there are some things that we should agree on. Of, of course there are. 
moral issues, things like abortion, the sanctity of life. Life begins at conception. We should. It's not like we don't take a stand on anything. But we got to handle these things in the right way with grace and love looking at the heart. Looking at the heart. Now those are three sort of difficult kind of discussions to have. These three creepy things. The movement from having a passion for outsiders to simply pacifying insiders. The, the movement from grace to law. And the movement from, from focusing on internal transformation to walking in some conforming set of line, uh, set of thoughts or, or some line that people told us that we got to conform to. Those three things, and there's probably others, y'all, they can wreck the movement of the church. Those three creeps can wreck the movement of the church. This moment in first century Jerusalem. In Acts 15, this letter from the Jerusalem Council. This was a monumental moment in the advancement of the gospel. Had the pendulum swung the other way, who knows what would have happened. A thousand years later, two thousand years later, many churches, fellowships, bodies of Christ have their own moments and many of them don't necessarily survive that. And if I could paint a little picture of the the, the the takeaway from, from this conversation today. We cannot make it hard for the non-Christians, for the outsiders in our area. Columbus, Phoenix City, Harris County, wherever you work, wherever you go to school, we cannot make it hard for them to turn to Christ. That is not what he would have for us to do, y'all. That is not what scripture would tell us. His last words are go make disciples. His last words in Acts 1.8, be my witnesses. Be my witness. Tell the world about me. Tell the world about what is found at the foot of the cross. Freedom. And even when I said things like I said a minute ago about abortion. I would imagine in a, in a, in a church the size, the size that we have, there's probably several people in our church that have experienced that. You are not condemned. You're not. There's freedom there. I don't care what it is. There's freedom at the foot of the cross. Do not let a world shame you. The church has done that for too many years. Do not do that. We will not be a body of believers that does that. We're not going to do it. Make it easy for people. And I don't mean walking the Christian life, walking the Christian walk is an easy walk. That's not at all what I'm saying. But Lord knows as Christ followers, we don't need to, to put a big four by four in front of somebody so they'll trip. <laughs> That's not, that's not what we need to do. We need to put our arms around each other. And we need to serve people together. And we need to love on people together. You think about it. 30-something kids sat right there Thursday night, professed to give their lives to Christ. That's the next generation that can, can go out and, and the, the fires of revival can sweep across our country led by this group of kids. Y'all, there was 30 volunteers in our church family who were pouring into those kids for four days. They were pouring Jesus into those kids. It was incredible. I told y'all several weeks ago about Papa Ed, Christy Murphy's uh, dad. That joker was saved in the VBS when he was eight years old. I texted Christy Thursday night. I said, I think maybe we had a Papa Ed give his life or her life to Christ tonight. Who knows? Like, I don't know. I know that we got to make it, we, we cannot make it hard for people. You get them here, I guarantee you they're going to hear the truth. Just get them here, y'all. 
Get them. Get them here. The broken, the lonely, the whatever. Get them here. They're going to hear the truth. They're going to hear the gospel, I promise you. I don't care what Sunday you bring them here. They're going to hear the gospel. And they're going to hear the whole gospel. And they're going to hear it every Sunday. And they're going to hear it in every opportunity that anybody in this church has. They're going to hear the gospel. Here's what they're going to hear. They're going to hear that you got to own the fact that you're a sinner. They're going to hear that you need to turn away from that and turn towards the Lord. We call that repentance in churchy words. Bottom line, I'm a sinner. i got to turn away from it, turn towards the Lord. Best I can, i got to turn towards the Lord. That's not a yardstick of perfection. i just got to turn away from it. And it may be hard and probably is hard, but i got to turn away from it. And then i got to—I just got to believe i got to believe that my sin has got to be punished. And i got to believe that Jesus' death on a cross took care of it. Took care of the punishment. Took care of the punishment of the sin I committed in the past, the sin I'm committing now, and the sin in the future. Took care of all of it. And that, he, that that punishment was physical death. Owning all the sin of everybody. But particularly mine. And I got to believe that he walked out of the grave alive. And I got to ask him to save me. That's what they're going to hear. That's what we hear every Sunday. You can't hear that too much. You cannot hear it too much. And if you heard that and you believe that today, and you cry out to the Lord to save you, he never said no to somebody. <laughs> That's not who he is. That's not in his character. That's not in his nature. You cry out to be saved. And the heavens will just rejoice in the fact that you just went from an eternity in hell to an eternity with him. It's the best deal that you could ever have. My prayer is for some of those kids who probably have parents, some of them who don't know the Lord, that one of those little kids is going to lead his parents to Christ. Like how cool would that be? If that's you today, I want us to close our eyes together. I want us to bow our heads. We don't do that all that often. I want to invite anybody that has never said yes to that offer. And you don't have to come up here, but I, you're invited to come up here. And if you're a believer and you just have something you need to dump at the foot of the cross to dump on the Lord's shoulders, bring it up here. You just say these words to yourself out loud, whatever you want. Lord, today is the day that I admit that I'm a sinner. Today is the day that I turn away from it and turn towards you. Lord, I believe your death paid the, the price that was my price to pay, but you took care of it. Lord, I believe you walked out of that grave alive. Participate as a group of believers in a beautiful moment.